We're going to now turn our attention to the Gospel of John. It'll be on the screens or you can find a pew Bible, whichever you would like. We're going to be in John chapter 2 this morning. And this should be a familiar passage to many of us. Uh, So uh, before we read the scripture, would you pray with me real quick? Lord Jesus, would you uh, be with us, Lord, to open our ears so that you may speak, Lord? Would you open our hearts so that we could receive your word, Lord? And may it be something that informs our discipleship. May it be something that encourages us and challenges us. May it be something um, that we can gain new insight from as to how to live our lives in your way. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. John chapter 2, starting at verse 1, says this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw them out and take it to the master of the banquet. So They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and the disciples. There they stayed for a few days. So there are just a couple of notes that I want to draw out from this powerful story from the Gospel of John. As we've been going through, we've been talking about how uh, John is older in years as he is uh, writing this Gospel. It's been a little while since the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have been written. And so there's different things that he's trying to bring to the fore as we're paying attention to how he's telling the story of Jesus. We can imagine in our minds we're sitting with the older, wiser, best friend of Jesus. And he's telling us the stories of Jesus' life, the things that matter most. And one of the important things that we need to note as we we draw to the surface how John is trying to tell this amazing story is how he uses this word sign. And many of you know that uh, There's a selectivity to the way John has chosen uh, the stories that he wants to give us here. 
And he's using a particular word. Even though this is a miracle, he's choosing the word sign in order to signify something about this miracle. Later, he tells us that Jesus performed many other miracles, that, so many that he wasn't able to account for all of them in his gospel. And so he's being selective about which miracles that he wants to bring to the fore. And so this is the very first of seven signs specifically selected to reveal the glory of God. John wants to show us the glory of God, and he's chosen this particular story to help explain something as a sign about who God is. There's something about this story that shows us about the character of God who Jesus really was. And so he's, he's deduced it that this is the right story to start Jesus' ministry. This is the right place to start, to kick off the gospel and the ministry of Jesus. And that shouldn't surprise us because we see right at the first line here in the story that there's all kinds of imagery that's alluding to the past and the future and is also taking place in the present. On the third day, hey, we could just right there, on the third day, those of us who've been tracking with the church know what that's an allusion to. Or now we're at a wedding, right? If, you've, if you know the scriptures, you know how much this wedding imagery comes up. And so here we are, there's Jesus at a wedding. And the, the first point I want to draw out comes from verse 8. You see, in verse 8, we see that Jesus has done something that signifies part of what it means that he is to be the one worthy of worship and glory. And that is that there's this this banquet host, right? This guy whose job it is in order to keep the party going. In our world, this is like a DJ or somebody who is at a wedding whose job it is to take the party from the next moment to the next moment to the next moment to the next moment. And in and, and this time, this, this wedding host, this, this uh, master of the banquet, was the one who was in charge of keeping all of the ceremonies going and making sure that this wedding was a great party, that it had all the elements of a great party. And we discover that the way that Jesus is going to do this miracle is going to tell us something about Jesus, which is that he's addressing the problem that's in the room, right? That Mary has surfaced to him, that the wine is running low. But the master of the banquet, this, this party guy, this guy who's supposed to be the one who keeps the party going, has no idea about this problem. But Mary knows about it. She brings it up to Jesus And Jesus then responds to answer the concern. And what does he do? He he sees these these jars that are for ceremonial cleansing, and he tells some servants to fill them with water. And when they do, then he says, scoop just a little bit out of those jars and go take it to this wedding master of ceremonies conductor. And somehow, as they're taking this water over to the master of ceremonies, this water 
turns into wine, not just wine, but the best choice wine, and he's able to deduce, oh, wow, what a wonderful party. In this story, what John is trying to teach us here is that there is a true master of the banquet, that it is not this this man who says, oh, wow, you saved the best wine until last. No, in fact, who is the master of the banquet? Who is the true bringer of, and here's the key word, joy? At the beginning, who is the bringer of joy? Is the answer to the question that's being raised here in this first sign. We can go all the way back to books like Job, and I want you to see this. I have it on the slide, I think. You may remember the context of Job is that Job's life has been completely dismantled and he's experienced so much pain and so the backdrop of the story is to discuss what it's like for somebody to go through extreme pain and loss in their life how do you help that person how do you even speak of such pain and the answer that is given in the book of job is found in the whirlwind chapter in verse 38 and continuing And some of the language there that's drawn out as God, as Yahweh speaks to Job, is revealing about this same element of who is the true master of the banquet. You can see when when Job spoke, I mean when God spoke to Job out of the world, he told him that when he, God, laid the foundations of the earth, that is created everything that exists, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The story of our faith, of our very existence, begins and ends with joy. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, It's important for us to center ourselves first in the tension of the story because it names something so true about what it means to be human, what it means to experience life. When I say joy, there may be things within you that come up about joy deficit. That's the tension of the story. There is a joy deficit. In all practical reality at this wedding, the evidence is showing that this wedding is going to end in embarrassment. They are scraping at the bottom of the barrel. This wedding will certainly, if only the evidence before them is to play out, end in disaster. And yet there's Mary, right? And she sees the problem, and because she's been told and had her experiences with God about who she is with, her son, that she knows that she can raise the question and point out the tension. We see Jesus doesn't react in the way that we would think somebody who's joyful would react in the story, right? the beginning, he doesn't seem very uh, concerned about what Mary is concerned about. He says, my hour has not yet come. 
And the key here is in the language, because it seems like Jesus is being confrontational with Mary. But if we look at this, this phrase, my hour has not yet come, we can discover in Scripture that other places that Jesus use it reveal to us that really what he's speaking about is his own wedding. You know how you do that when you go to a wedding? You either think about the wedding, your wedding that you had, or if you haven't had one, then you think about what your future wedding may be like. In some sense, this is what Jesus is doing in this story as a sign. We see that Jesus is thinking about his wedding. He's thinking about what it's going to take for him to provide wine at his wedding. And as he's thinking about that, he uses this language of hour. He's saying, my hour has not yet come. Now, as we sit in the tension of thinking about why it's such a concern that this wine would run low, perhaps we can ask the question this morning, what blocks your joy? What are the things that keep joy from flowing in you? When you walked in this morning, what were the things that prevented you from feeling a sense of connectedness to God's joy? I know a few for me that would come up would be self-consciousness. Like when I'm thinking about my problems and what I have to deal with, I can become very self-conscious and in my own head just sort of play out the things that are concerning me and the things that are worrying me and the problems that I need to solve. And I can start going, well, these Bible stories are really nice, but what's going on in my life, I'm not yet seeing the connection because practically I have these struggles and I need answers to these struggles. And I can get so looking inward at myself that I have a hard time experiencing joy. having access to joy. Or perhaps sometimes another mechanism that we can develop that can block joy is our cynicism, right? So much easier to say this song isn't very good than it is to say I'm afraid to go out and bust a move on the dance floor. Cynicism is a way for us who have a lot to respond to those who are in the game, those who are doing, those who are trying, those who are trying and failing, to sit back and to watch. Whole industries in our culture are created about just sitting back and watching other people do things and then commenting on how well they did it or how poorly they did it. And this cynicism as we sit in that posture, blocks our ability to have joy, to let the joy flow. These are just two examples of many that may be sources of blocks for how we miss joy, but let's go back to Jesus' response in the story, right? Jesus, who's not only master of the banquet, but is also the winemaker, He is the one who has decided that he's willing to love humanity at the bottom 
that at the bottom of the barrel, that's where Jesus does his best work. He came into the world when the world was at the bottom of the barrel. And the good news is, is that they tried to crush him. But with every single blow that they tried to crush him with, that was actually just making new wine. Just a new vintage. Just a new source of new life for all people who are beaten down and downtrodden. If we peel back the layers on why we can default to self-consciousness or cynicism, if we just peel back one more layer, we might, for some of us, reveal that our real concern is about if there's going to be enough. Will there be enough in this season for whatever you are facing? And the answer is found in the master of the ceremony and the winemaker and the bridegroom who says, I want to be with my church and I'm willing to do whatever it takes in order to be with my church. I have one, uh, one uh, picture that I want to share with you. It's of a Celtic cross. And I find that th this image of, of, of a Celtic cross is helpful when we're thinking about our life and then how Jesus is at the center of our life. In, in, Celtic, in Celtic tradition, the circle around the cross is to exemplify eternity, to exemplify all of life, all of the things we've been thinking about and discussing. And as Jesus brings the joy Jesus at the foundation of the earth is saying at the foundation of everything what has created all of life, why we get to live and enjoy life is because of eternal joy. God's eternal joy that makes life come to being. And so this circle is a way for us, we could just imagine in the Celtic tradition we're invited to encircle our lives and to say all of the things in our life are the source of God's life, are the source of God's joy out of eternity. And so we could just imagine our life in the circle of our life. And we know that there's complexity and problems in the circle of our life. And that's why there's a cross in the middle. Because the cross in the middle makes it possible for us to experience the joy through the pain, because of what Jesus has done. So we encircle ourselves, and then we acknowledge that Jesus is at the very center, at the very center of our lives. And I think if we could do that well, what ends up happening is we can look at our life in a new way. It really creates access to that same joy that we were made with, that creation was made with, and it allows us to do what I think is the final thing that we need to focus on in the story this morning. It's to simply partake. You see, the people at this wedding feast, they got to partake in the wine that Jesus created. And that's our life. 
we get to partake in what Jesus has made. And it should be a source of great joy and celebration for us. There's a simple story in the book of Exodus that's really beautiful, that kind of is like a lost in the midst of so many stories in the book of Exodus, where Moses is going up, meeting with God, and when he meets with God, then he comes down, and sometimes his face is radiant, and, and people are afraid because he's met with God, and they see the impact that it's had. But there's this one time where actually the people are willing to go up with Moses in Exodus 24, 11. They go up with Moses and they see God, they see Yahweh. And then there's just a simple line in scripture that is so revelatory that says, they saw God and then they ate and they drank. And the reason why this is so fascinating is because it speaks about our everyday ordinary lives. They saw God, then they went back to eating and drinking, doing the things we do every day in simple, ordinary ways. And yet, I think it begs the question, if after they saw God, if what they ate and drank might have been that much richer, might have been that much more full of life. They, like they could really savor all of the flavors and really enjoy their days because they had seen the one who made the food and the drink and it changed the way they felt about their days. This is how we partake in what God has given us in this life. May it give us so much joy. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, uh, place us at the center of the circle of our lives, Lord, knowing that you have given us so much, so much to hold, Lord, so much to be thankful for, so much that we're dealing with, God, and we're thankful that you, by your cross, by your way, have made it possible for us to experience joy, not just in the victories, Lord, but also in the defeats of life. Lord, you meet us in every place, in the hospital bed, Lord, you meet us um, in our jobs, you meet us wherever we are, and you invite us to experience it all, knowing your joy. In your precious and holy name, we pray that you would bring a blessing to um, our worship now, and we thank you for this time that we have together. Be with us as we go as well. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.